wedding, Jim. But not as we know it. How dare you? Zero. Three. It is 15 minutes to midnight on Thursday the 23rd of March 2023 and you are listening to The Bashcast. Coming up in this late night Bashcast parent-child parking at Morrison's and the theory of the unreturned shopping trolley. Tom takes a short trip to Aleppo in Syria. The Cheltenham Festival, a day-by-day breakdown and review of the performance of the Bucky Bashing Racing Tracker. And we also look at default versus BB Algo metrics. Which one performs better in 2023? We only sing when we're winning. So how has golf been in 2023? Also Double Delight, Hattrick Heaven, a 12-month 560-bet review of ROI and swinginess. And we finish with the professional betting goat and an insight into a game-changing blackjack strategy. All of that and much more coming up in this late-night bashcast. I'll tell you my thought process yesterday. My thought process was I am in need of some treats for the evening because it's parents' evening and if it goes well, they've got to have treats. If it goes badly, they've still got to have treats because they're very young, so you can't really hold it against them. So um, I'm, I don't have a lot of time. I need to get this done. I'm just going to pop down to Morrison's at 12.25, right? Now, I've got to get golf selections out at 1pm. That's like my only my only deadline of the week is 1pm. And Morrison's is two minute drive down the road, right? So this isn't, this isn't in any way risky. So 12.25 takes me about 20 minutes to do the golf selections. I'm fine. I pop into Morrison's. I end up actually just doing like a, a small to medium shop. And I take everything to the till. And uh, I've got maybe 16 items and the till breaks down. The till actually breaks down. And the, what's happened is something's got jammed inside the printer roll and everything like that. Time is ticking away. It's my only deadline of the week. And I'm stuck in Morrison's. And uh, how long do you have to wait for a member of staff now that we've got self-service tills in the supermarkets? And by the way, how is apple juice £4.99? It's £4.99. Like, I'm not a spinthrift. But I'm not spending £4.99 on apple juice. It went back. So I ended up having to leave all of the items, annoyingly, because it was just taking so long for somebody to come. I had to pull the plug and get home. And as I came out of the supermarket, the most irritating thing that I ever see was right in front of my eyes. It is grown men or women. 
I don't see any differentiation between the sexes. It's 50-50 guilty parties. They do have one thing in common, and that's that they're arseholes. Parking in the parent and child parking places when they don't have any children. Like, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Uh, Do people park there because it's closer to the store? Do people park... I mean, I wasn't parked there, but I do park there when I've got the kids. And one of the reasons I park there when I've got the kids is both of my kids are in child seats and you have to wedge me and a child into the door of the car to to unseat belt the smaller one, the four-year-old, because he can't do it himself, and then lift him out of the car. And so the extra space that is offered on both sides of the parent-child parking space is genuinely quite useful. Um, and I wasn't parked there on this particular day because my kids were at school on a Wednesday at lunchtime. But why would you park there without children? What, is, is it one of uh, three reasons, okay? One, you don't want to... You've got a precious car and you don't want people banging their door against your car. Uh, in which case, by the way, if this is true, just park right at the other side of the car park. In fact, I heard, read a mathematical theory that if you know those people that just like drive all the way around car parks over and over and over again, looking for the ideal spot. If you just parked in the very first car parking spot that you saw in every car park between now and the end of time, you will be up on time. Even though there may be a closer car park, the number of times that you look for a closer car parking space, don't find one and have to double back on yourself, is balanced out by the number of times that you park and then discover a closer car parking space. Balanced out to the tune of the fact that if you always parked in the first car parking space, then you would be up on time. And also you get your neat up, something I definitely do need to get up. I need to walk more steps and that's just free steps when you do that. So one... Just park the other side of the car park and there'll be plenty of spaces where there's not a car next to you. Or two, you are want to just park close to the store and you don't have any children and you don't care. In which case, you're an arse, okay? Or three, you just don't care. Like, you, you, you literally just don't care. I, I guess actually two and three are exactly the same thing, aren't they? But then it's like, what does that say about you? Like, take a shopping trolley. Right? Have you ever seen a shopping trolley just left in the middle of a car park? So you take the shopping trolley to your car. You put all of the shopping in your car. You then have two options. You can take the shopping trolley back to the shopping trolley bay, or you can leave it in the space and drive off. Now, if you think about this, there is no actual net gain. There is no net positive outcome to the individual for taking the shopping trolley back. If anything... There is a negative, there is a cost involved, and that is the time that it takes for you to take the shopping trolley back. You don't have to do that. There's no law. You're not going to get fined. Even if somebody rolls their eyes, you're not going to see those people again. So why doesn't everybody just leave shopping trolleys in the middle of the car park? The shopping trolley theory. Well, it separates dicks from people who have a reasonable moral compass. That's why. You see... It doesn't cost you anything to take it back apart from a little bit of time. But what everybody else gains is so worth it. We have a car park that is free of shopping trolleys so that if you want to park your car, you don't have to get out of the car and move a damn shopping trolley. Yes, there are people that work there 
um, that can move the shopping trolley. But why should they? Why don't you just? Why are you in so much of a rush? Why is why is your brain so either selfish or rushed? Why don't you have enough time? Why didn't you leave a few minutes earlier? These same people. I won't get on with my day until the bed's made. Who's going to see an un, an unmade bed in my house? Uh, given that I've been married for the last 12 years, pretty much just my wife, right? So who's going to see an unmade bed? Nobody. So I could just leave the bed not made and get on with my day. But I don't. I make the bed because it's just part of an organized, unrushed process I like to go through. I'm not in a rush and I'm organized and that's very important. And in the supermarket, I will take the shopping trolley back. And by the way, 95% of people will. I'm not a martyr for taking the bloody shopping trolley back. 95% of people will. But 5% of people will not take the shopping trolley back. And I don't know. I feel like it's a higher percentage of people will park in the bloody parent and child parking bays without children. I mean, or even if your child's 15, that's not good enough. Like you've got a grown adult child. Um, have I ever said anything to anyone? No, but I feel like the older that I'm getting and the more that I see it, I think the day's going to come where I, I start just saying it to every single person that I see. Where's your child? What are you doing? You're actually, you, you, one, there's going to be a young mother or father that arrives in the car park and has to park in a narrower space and struggle to squeeze the child and themselves through the car door at the same time because of your selfish actions if you're one of those people that parks in the parent and child parking bay have a look at your life have a look at what you're doing have a look at your choices that you're making i left the shopping i came back i did the golf selections Joachim lagergren was in my golfing selections um the dp world tour golfer and Lagergren is one of those players that he just seems to feature every single week as a plus EV player. I don't know why. It's like, why does why does money come in for this guy? Why does this guy steam up in EV? Why does this Swede always appear to be valued? Because I have a bit of a mental block with him now. He always seems to be valued, but he never seems to do anything. We had him as 125% purple EV in the Singapore Classic. He finished 38th. We had him at 116% EV in the Thailand Classic. He also finished in 38th in that tournament. We had him at 136% EV in the Kenya Open. He finished in 65th. His last five tournaments, he's finished 38th, 38th, 88th, 84th, and 68th. I mean, this is hardly pedigree stuff. He missed the cut of two of those five tournaments he always seems to maybe do okay on the first round like uh in the singapore classic he was 65 and then he finishes 71 72 72 so look a lot of the time when i'm narrowing down some selections i'm sort of focusing on who is a little bit worse ev that i can include and i think i wanted to ditch 120 percent yokum at 90 to 1 but I couldn't really find anyone a little bit worse than I wanted. Stats didn't seem to line up for me, but I ended up taking him, and I thought, Do you know what? I'll, I'll set, I'll put him out, and I won't have him myself. Uh, and then FOMO kicked in, and of course I have to have him because now I'm 
focused on a single player and I'm on an anti-sweat on a single player and I'm out of luck on anti-sweats because uh, I was anti-sweating Fitzpatrick last week and um, he missed the cut. But that's not going to happen all of the time. So I ended up getting Lagergren right at the last minute and he's right in front of me just now in the ridiculously poorly named Johnson Workwear Open at Steen City, Johannesburg in South Africa. He's eight under after 13 holes and leading the tournament. So of course he is. And I am on him. Anyway, this isn't the golf section. Um, what's been going on? Where did I leave the last bash cast? Oh, that's right. The flippity flop. That's where I was going to see you. So I guess this is the flop. We've had the flippity. I was um, toying with the idea of um, going to Syria in the last trip. And um, how that panned out was I needed security clearance from the Syrian government and uh, it takes um, three days to four days. Now, we were going to be going to Syria from Beirut on the Thursday and so the latest it could go in is the Sunday hoping that it would get cleared by Wednesday afternoon. The Syrian authorities' office shut at 4pm so I was like, I need to hear by Wednesday 4pm. And if I do hear that I'm going, I'm going to be flying Thursday morning from Heathrow to Beirut. Four o'clock comes and goes, no word from anybody. And I guess I thought that I wasn't going, at that, at that, you know, because, like, I'm not going to hear anything until the next morning now, and I can't, that, that's too late to fly to Beirut, so I guess I'm not going. And I was kind of disappointed, but also I had a bit of anxiety about going, about whether it was safe or not. So I did that kind of, well, at least I'm not going to be killed. And then at quarter past four, an email drops through and the security clearance had actually gone through. So it went from hoping that I'm going to probably not going, but justifying it through that means that it's safe to now that I'm going. And that felt a bit weird. So um, I went down to Heathrow and flew to Beirut just kind of putting one foot in front of another, not really knowing how safe it was going to be, but thinking I can make a judgment about how safe it will be and I can always turn around and pull out if I need to. And um, when I got to Beirut, I met the group of people that I was going to travel over to Damascus in Syria with. And the girl that came and met us who was going to sort of take us up to the border was from Bilbao in Spain. I think she was from Bilbao. She was definitely from Spain. And she had been in a commune in the mountains of India meditating when she got a call that she had to take a train to Oman and then fly over to Beirut. So her and me are like the most opposite people in the entire world. I was pretty convinced if she knew my pedigree, my background my life situation, we weren't particularly going to get on. Because she was in a meditation commune in the mountains of northern India, and I'm a, per, a professional gambler with a mortgage on a house in Bromsgrove, right? So quite different paths in life we've taken. I mean, I'm sure we're both, you know, easygoing enough people that we don't have a lot of hatred inside of us. I just didn't think we had a lot in common to synchronise the two of us, but it was fine. We got on okay. Um, we went. Um, I did. I, I sort of made the deduction that it was safe, and I trusted the people. So we did go up to the Lebanon border, changed some money at the Lebanon border. You realise that there is a logistical problem 
with taking money over to Syria. And that is the hyperinflation that goes on. You can't actually get money out in Syria. There are The ATMs don't work um, through various sanctions and there's no credit cards, debit cards, anything like that. So you take cash with you. So we got Syrian pounds in um in Lebanon, and I only changed 100 US dollars, and I got a brick of Syrian pounds. I think I got like a million Syrian pounds, and the wedge of notes was just like, it, it actually is a, it, it's a logistical issue in terms of how you carry the money and take it around. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just so voluminous. So... We took the, we got over to Damascus, and the weird thing about Syria, uh, well, for starters, by far the most dangerous component when traveling to Syria is your mother finding out three days into the trip. I mean, I'm 44 years old. And still, one of the hardest things in life is your mum worrying about you. And I had a white paper strategy for mum. And that was that whilst I told my sister, my, uh, my wife, um, and those pretty, you know, friends closest around me, I didn't feel the need to tell everybody because there would have been some unnecessary worry. And God bless her, my mum worried when um, I went on holiday to a Tui hotel in Turkey last year because she didn't think Turkey was safe. So heaven knows what she was going to think about going over to northern Syria. Um, so I decided that I just wasn't going to tell her. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't tell everyone um, else that plan. Like There was a number of people I didn't tell. Uh, one of those people found out and they, they had a conversation with my mom and she found out three days into the trip and um, didn't go down well, as far as I'm aware. I think I was sheltered from quite a lot of the news. But um, what a strange country Syria is. We, we, we did make it over there as a group. You have to travel via a group with a letter of invitation. So I was with um, um, a number of very cool people. One of the most enjoyable parts of the trip was actually meeting the group um guy from holland who may who said he was going to tune into the next bashcast so g'day the guy from holland niels say niels everyone um a couple of romanian people a couple of spanish portuguese german it was really nice meeting everyone someone from ireland um uh, that was like an unexpected bonus but what was the strange thing about visiting syria was how much there is a north-south divide seemingly um, we were starting the trip in the south in Damascus. And in Damascus, we could walk around pretty freely by ourselves, not escorted. I was in a nightclub in Damascus at four o'clock in the morning. And there was an 18-year-old girl who got up on the table. She had a backwards baseball cap, a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand. And it's a very um, liberal country in that respect i think it's 60 percent muslim 40 percent christian don't quote me but something like that it's not majority muslim unlike some other middle eastern places and so they're they're very happy for um sort of western liberal values drinking the beer everyone smokes the 12 year olds are smoking everything like that and damascus in places could be like walking around rome and it felt very very safe conversely the north of the country when you get up to Palmyra, Homs, Hama, Aleppo, right? It's not exactly the same. Now you're into a war-torn country that's been at war since 2013 and 
what hasn't been damaged by the war then got damaged by the earthquake and there were some fairly conservative families up there um there were um people up there that i would go up and sort of fist bump the dad and then just naturally fist bump the lady the daughter or the wife and their friends would pull their arms away from fist bumping me because for whatever conservatism reason you're not allowed to fist bump me and i kind of i didn't know i I felt bad for putting them in a difficult spot and everyone i spoke to up in the north either had lost people from the earthquake or from the war or from both and it was quite harrowing to see um so i have come home um with some projects um i have set up some um transfers through western union where i can get some money over to people to continue these projects now that i'm home um i'm not asking anyone for money so there's no just giving so don't worry i'm not going down that route and i don't particularly need to talk about what the projects were it was a personal trip but what i found interesting i suck at social media i really do i don't really know how to do social media because social media always seems to sort of whether it's it's twitter whether it's instagram it's been a long time since i've used facebook but um if i'm talking to someone i think i can gauge the level of the tone of i want to share an experience with you because it was either cool or interesting and i like you and i want to share a cool or interesting experience with you um whereas that feels like bragging on social media um uh, I don't know why it should. Well, the reason it should is because I think sometimes you see some people that are hurting, that you know are hurting, and they will put a post up about how glorious and wonderful life is, and you kind of see through it and you know that it isn't. But um, I had, I think I mentioned maybe um, a couple of things, and I got six bits of feedback, and four of the six were negative. Um, uh, One of them telling me that I'm I'm allowed to do things without sharing it with the world. Someone telling me they were unfollowing me. Someone asking if one of the um, survivors of an ISIS attack was purple on the tracker, because heaven forbid I don't talk about anything that isn't gambling. And I was talking to Jen about this. I She said, don't mention it, because what happens is that you just detract away from the conversation of the important stuff and you focus on the unimportant stuff, which is this. It's more of an interesting thing that I don't get it. I really don't understand the 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 mechanisms of communication through th- these platforms and how something like what I was doing could be perceived as um, a negative trip. And you sort of ask yourself, well, what were the reasons why you were doing it? And um, I, the reasons that I was doing this trip were based on from a good place. I was trying genuinely to help. I had heard Gavin Williamson, the MP and the UN, explain that it was um, a tragedy what was happening up in northern Syria after the earthquake because Turkey had had as much help as it could possibly need because it was possible to access that country, um, whereas northern Syria did not have the same um, provision. And so I thought I would go and help. And that's where the basis of the trip came from. And so, do you know what? If if it comes across negatively or badly to anyone else, it, it really it, it doesn't matter. It's not important. It's not the reason why I did it. So Jen's right. Don't focus on those people. I did put a video together 
Um, we stuck that up on the Bookie Bashing YouTube page, which is what? I don't actually know what that is. Let me pause the video, watch that, actually find out what that link is. Ah, that was quite easy. It was as simple as at Bookie Bashing on YouTube. So if you search for at Bookie Bashing, you'll find our channel. You can subscribe to that. We don't have that many subscribers, but every time we do a new video, we put it up on the um, YouTube channel. I think our... Um, our marketing manager lady is doing some shorts on there, whatever shorts are. Um, and I'm, I'm actually getting a, a studio, a YouTube studio built at home so that they can look a little bit more professional and we can do some more videos throughout the year. But um, the last video that we've put up on there as of 23rd of March is Visit to Aleppo, Syria, March 2023. It's about 55 minutes long. So, you know, if you're one of those people that are interested in the personal waffle, and the trip to Syria, then you can check that video out. And if you are not one of those people, but you're one of those on the forum, the Discord forum that recently commented that the Bashcast got a lot better after I started putting timestamps into the description because they could then skip over all of the personal waffle, then you won't have heard any of this part of it. You'll have skipped over it and you'll be joining in a second, about the 26 minute mark for all of the betting content. And to those people that aren't listening, all I have to say is suck your mum. I want to take an analytical look at the horse racing tracker. Um, we have a an edge in horse racing where, the same as golf, we estimate the probability of a horse finishing first, exactly second, exactly third, exactly fourth, exactly fifth, etc., etc., and then we compare this against the terms available at each bookmaker and come up with our own EV rating. Now, the source of the information um, to work out the probability of the place varies um when there is a liquid exchange it's like how can we ignore that like what information do we possibly have in-house that can be uh better than a liquid exchange with all the connections and the money that is there i mean it's like we can't possibly at scale have more information than that um ourselves and so we tend in uh, we have a metric which is called the default metric in our tracker and the default metric we'll use Information in the liquid exchange when it's there. When it isn't there, we need something to fill in the gaps. We could either use the markets or we estimate the probability ourselves in-house using a technique called regression analysis. Regression analysis looks at historical data and tries to map an equation, a pattern that is based on large data sets. And you can get something called an R-squared value, which is the fit that how good the fit is. So an, an R squared of 50% would mean that there's very little pattern. The fit is very bad. This equation is not a good indicator, predictor of the historical trends. And then maybe an R squared value of 98 98% is a very good fit. I mean, it's a little bit subjective of what is good and what is bad and very much um, differs depending on the field that you're in. If you're in sort of precision engineering or medicine then you will want certainly a lot more confident fits than perhaps economics investing gambling equations so the regression analysis looked backwards at two million horses we and we looked at um sort of divisions 
of win probability. So we looked at horses between, say, two to one and nine to four, and then maybe 10 to one and 12 to one. So we set up our own divisions of probability odds for the, on the win. And we said in field sizes of N horses, what historically has been the probability of a horse that is two to one to nine to four finishing in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Sometimes we have very large data sets to draw on in that two million horses. If you want to look at a horse who is nine to four in a seven horse race, there has been a lot of examples of that in the last two million horses. If you want to have a look at a horse that is 66 to one in a 27 runner race, well, there are fewer data sets. There are fewer examples of that. And so there's less confidence. But regardless, we have a series of probability equations. Uh, we have a series of equations, fits, if you like, that estimate probability based on the regression analysis for different sets of win odds and different field sizes. We don't take into account things like composition of the race. If there's one or more very short price favorite, or if there are lots of outsiders that would affect things and it's not something we bring in. But regardless, this is our BB algo, we call it, where we're working out the probability of the place ourselves in-house. Turns out that when we started looking at the ROI of the BB algo, it was... It stood up very well against the ROI of the prices that we were taking from Betfair. Very, very well. In some occasions, it was doing better than Betfair. There's no reason why it should. Uh, we would argue perhaps that the confidence in our equation, our BB algo, is lower than a liquid exchange. So when we're seeing it have returns on investment that beat Betfair, it's lovely to see... But our honest opinion would be that is small sample size. That's luck. That's variance. We, we we would suggest that the evidence is there that the exchange should be more accurate than our regression analysis. There's no way we're saying our BB algo should be more um, accurate at predicting probability of place prices than the exchange. So that it, should, it, it, it naturally should be that the default has a higher ROI than the BB algo. It naturally should be that the exchange is a better estimator of probability of place price than the BB algo. So we released the BB algo early 2022. And then in late 2022, we wanted to have a look at large scale analysis of how it compared in terms of ROI against the default. And when we looked at the data, we unfortunately found that the field that was exported along with the rest of the horses from the horse racing tracker was corrupt in the confidence field, meaning we did not know which horse was taken from information from the exchange and which horse was BB Algo. That's perhaps a liberal use of the drama sound effect, so I'll have a word with myself over that one. Anyway, it was a bit annoying because I was looking forward to that uh, piece of analysis and we couldn't do it. Um, like we knew some horses from earlier in the year, so we had some idea of the ROI, but it was an incomplete data set. And incomplete data sets aren't that great to use because the, uh, the, the question arises, why did you use this winner and not this winner and so on and so forth. It's just messy. So from the 1st of January, we started actually recording properly and we record 
Six bookmakers, Bet365, Betfred, Ladbrokes, William Hill, Paddy Power and Skybet, those are the six. I mean, we could record more, but we do this manually, so it takes friggin' forever, right? So we record six um, bookmakers and two different metrics. We One with the default and one with the BB algo. And um, uh, there's been a... a, a, a there's been a few people ask if we can start commenting on and reporting on the differences between the default and the BB algo because they want to new, know what to use. They, I mean, as we say, we think that the default should be have, have more precision and have a higher ROI. The one of the benefits of the BB algo is you're probably less likely to get restricted using the BB algo. I mean, restrictions have been difficult on the horse racing tracker due to the selfish actions of a few people that found it necessary to scrape and resell the bookie bashing um, horse racing tracker but now that we have prevented them and stopped them from doing that hopefully restrictions slow down because there's a lot fewer people betting on exactly the same horses a lot fewer so um, and BBL goes good in terms of um, restrictions because you could certainly be taking horses that uh, are, are pretty bad price on the place on the exchange or there's no liquidity which means that the bookmakers have got nothing to benchmark it against themselves um and so they're sort of looking at you like well at least you're pricing this up yourself and you're not just a an arbor or an each way arbor right so i mean those are the benefits really of it so um there was a few requests i mean to be fair there's been and then cheltenham's come along and there were more requests and um one of the things the least fun thing that I have involving boogie bashing has always been um, kind of the management of misbehavior on Discord. And um, I don't know why late, you always see it about this time of the year, 2020 March time was the worst when um, we had to kick a fairly sizable group of people and I ended up leaving for the most part Discord. So um, um, I found it impossible to engage with people on there without it like turning into some sort of argument or one-upsmanship um and so i now kind of just monitor and report um in, in case there is any murmurings there is any trouble and there started to be trouble again in late march i think it's something to do with this period of the year before the clocks change for the summer where people haven't had enough sunlight and um just getting a little bit down in the dumps but um there, there were three people that got sort of timeout booted recently um one was kind of a beginner who was asking lots of questions that but then he, when he would get answers for the question would argue with every single one and throw it back at them and he was convinced that arbitrage was the way forward i mean it's fine to have that thought process i'm not going to ban anyone from having a, you know hedging is for gardeners and we are a site that promotes advantage play and betting one side of things but look, I, I i don't hate you if you want to mitigate risk and hedge i have a different opinion from you just like the way that i want to be able to talk to people on both sides of the political spectrum without hatred just have an honest and um conversation i can disagree with you and it's fine we can still be pals it's the same sort of here like, i've got my strategies you can have a different strategy it's okay but let's not fall over it but the thing is he was so argumentative this chap this new guy and then i think there were some pretty strong swear words and um misogyny and so he, he got booted he was the first the second was during Cheltenham. Um, we were doing some... Somebody had asked the question, how is Cheltenham going for everyone? Do you use default versus BB algo? So after three days, I did an update. Um, and my update showed that the BB algo was in profit and default was 
break even, maybe just marginally down by like a, if you were betting to £200 unit win on the win, you might have been down a couple of quid uh, by the end of day three. Um, and you might have been up 300 quid using BB Algo. Um, uh, so I did a little review of that. I mean, I understand what did Emporium do. They were up 200 points in the first two days and ended up down. Um, we were the other way. I think that, so uh, they started strong and ended badly and our grass are the other way around. We started badly and ended strong. BB Algo was up from the beginning because they got a winner in the very first horse that we recorded. So the data set I'm looking at here, by the way, I've taken those six bookmakers and then what I've done is I've removed duplicates so that, you know, if a horse was plus EV and two bookmakers or more, we only count him once. Um, we, I don't take the best price. I just take the first time it was recorded. So it could be a worse price. It could be the best price. I don't know. It, it, it literally is the first time the horse got recorded in the spreadsheet is the first instance that we take. Um, and the graphs show that Monday... Tuesday were pretty bad. D default was down. Um, let's say you were unit win to win 200 quid, so, you know, 20 quid at 10 to 1. Um, uh, you were probably down 400 pounds after a couple of days um, uh, using the default, and you were maybe up 250 quid using the BB algo. And then they the lines converged, that, this is the weird one. On the Thursday, the default had some success and the BB algo didn't. So the lines converged um, so that the default was about break even. And then they both ended up up with a strong Friday. Both of them had a strong Friday, so they both probably had the same winners um, on the Friday. Um, it looks like the 210, 250 was a very good race. And then the last three races for both of them, um, the 410, the for 50 definitely at least those two were very strong races actually the the very last race of the week the 530 on the last day was a loser but the um roi of at cheltenham at the end was 16 percent if you include all horses duplicated in the default if you just want to take one horse one time at a bookmaker and he's a plus EV at the next bookmaker, you don't take that. I think that's a more reasonable way of doing it. The ROI was down at 2%. BB Algo, if you want to include duplicates, it was 28%. If you want to just include one horse at one bookmaker and not again at another bookmaker, it was 18%. So the BB Algo was a lot stronger than the default. You were looking at about 40 to 70 horses per day an average of 66.5 horses per day using the default metric, and an average of 55 horses a day using the BB algo. Interesting there that there's maybe 15 to 20% fewer horses in the BB algo that are plus EV than on the default. So the exchange makes more horses um, plus EV than the BB algo does. Um, that stands true sort of longer term it kind of suggests that the bb algo is on average pessimistic compared to the exchange and i think we would prefer it that way around certainly we wouldn't want to optimistic compared to the exchange so roughly about 10 15 percent fewer plus ev horses using bb algo than the default metric so yeah i reported on this halfway through cheltenham just because some people were interested in which metrics were being used and how Cheltenham was going. And I just hate 
reading the replies to any time that I update results. Especially this, I know that it's a small sample size. Look, we're talking about 196 bets at Bet365, 104 bets at Paddy Power, 38 plus EV bets at Ladbrokes. You know what I mean? I mean, so few plus EV horses at Ladbrokes. That's 38 horses over four days. So I know the sample size is quite small. Um, in total, we had 266 plus EV horses over the four days using the default metric and 218 using the BB algo. So these, the, the, those are meaningless sample sizes. And I mean, how many races is that? Um, seven, 28 races. I mean, if the favourites win every race as they did do in the first day, then there's nothing that, there's very little chance that going to be significantly in profit. So I know that the sample size is low, but it's still interesting to promote it. I mean, Emporium promoted, they were 200 points up and they were down at the end, but it's 28 races. So the feedback from somebody was that everybody I've spoken to has lost their bollocks. Now, I'm not going to say that's unuseful, but we had put up a spreadsheet um, with the six bookmakers um, and we had the better part of 266 horses that were plus EV um, with an ROI ranging between 2% and 18%, depending on which metric you were looking at. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that that's more useful than the passing comments that everybody I know has lost their bollocks because that's just a global statement. And what frustrates me is that we're held to a different standard. Somebody in the forum can just say the words, everyone I know has lost their bollocks. And to everyone else, that's it. Well, that means that the Bucky Bashing Horse Racing Tracker was unsuccessful during Cheltenham when the empirical data shows that in both metrics, we were showing a positive ROI. And so I'd much rather look at the data. And yet this hearsay, this subjective hearsay is equally as strong on the forum. I mean, it was a global truth because it wasn't just I'm down. It was everybody I talked to has lost their bollocks. And I pushed the blog and then this person went even further and said um, that we were after timing because we were up at Cheltenham, we were saying it. And there's a lot of selective results reporting that goes on at Bucky Bashing. And so he got kicked at that point because it's very important to note that transparency is one of the most important things that we have. I mean, this should be obvious by the very long losing runs that we often go on in different areas at Bucky Bashing. Very long. Just have a look at golf in 2023, which we are going to come at. Well, I mean, there is no selective reporting. We take exactly the same horses, exactly the same bookmakers, exactly the same time. And we spend a long long time and a lot of resource recording and reporting on results for them to be transparent for people to say to see so the accusation ended up with being booted because it was unfair um we don't selectively pick results we report whether we win or we lose after timing you only after time when you didn't say the bet up front we're actually reporting on bets after they were live on the tracker so there's no after timing going on and if everyone you know lost their bollocks at Cheltenham, perhaps you should have just downloaded the bets at exactly 12 p.m. using either the default metric or the BB algo, because both metrics at 12 p.m. at Cheltenham showed a profit. And then we had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of Cheltenham, and then we have Saturday and Sunday full football, 
fixtures. I mean, I know Monday's not a Cheltenham day, but for all intents and purposes, we were working very hard on Cheltenham. One of the most important pieces of software that we had been working on for a very, very long time at Boogie Bashing was the ability of the site to stay live. Because historically, in the last two years, we've gone down on the very first day of Cheltenham, sometimes for the entire day. For various reasons to do with perhaps some um, attacks in our direction, for reasons of load, which can actually look exactly the same as DDoS attacks, um, the trackers hanging, there was a major problem in accessibility. And so the main works we've been putting in have been around the technical work of a highly available web system. Had the site gone down at any point, we were we would have been able to point to a backup site and been back out online for a few minutes. We were actually down for 30 minutes in the morning of Cheltenham, but that's because um, when the scrapers were looking at various races, they weren't just called the normal 3.30 at Cheltenham or 1.30 at Cheltenham. They were called the Supreme Novices Hurdle. And that actually trips up a lot of scraping and we just have to go in and change a little bit of code and just make sure that that's correct. So 30 minutes in the first day, one tracker was down. The other one, the basic tracker was still live it's just the pro tracker that was down um so we were pretty happy with that but the thing is it's one of those things like it harks back to the days when i was um senior management on the m25 road network when everything's working when you've done your job successfully nobody notices that's the point of doing your job successfully a successful job is nobody nobody's flow is interrupted the roads are just working the traffic is flowing that's a successful job. When you do a not successful job or an unsuccessful job, the road, the, the carriageway structure fails or the traffic flow comes to a halt from something that was preventable. So you failed at your job then and everyone notices and shouts at you when there are problems with the M25 road network. And when you're doing your job, nobody notices that you did your job. And so it's kind of the same with bookie bashing. We did a very good job keeping the site online. Uh, the trackers didn't hang. We didn't go down. We didn't have any load issues. If we did have DDoS attacks for a third year in a row, we didn't notice them. They would have been deflected. We had a highly available web system. It stayed live. But nobody notices because that's what you expect. And that's fine. We can sort of, we're not looking for praise. It, it should, it, it genuinely should be the minimal expectation. But unfortunately, this led on Sunday to murmurings to complaints that we're not doing anything. Um, and somebody had some significant complaints that we sit around doing nothing, um, that user requests have been hanging around for months without being addressed. He could have um, done it in two days. Um, why, um, so why haven't we done it? And the reason why we haven't done it is because we haven't been looking at enhancements onto an already good piece of software. We've been more focused on the priority of keeping it live. The rant continued about how we're now pretty much failing. And again, is it this time of year? And that was a third person booted in a very short period of time. And it was starting to do my nut in. It really was. It's like... Um, complaints about how we manage stuff at Bookie Bash, and we have to take decisions sometimes that are unpopular. Decisions such as, you know, we've got to work 
and put all of our resources into keeping things live and online instead of enhancements, whether that's frustrating or not. Um, and I know we do take on some enhancements, but it's one of those things that we can't possibly discuss how we manage boogie bashing from marketing to community size to the cost of manage- membership to how we allocate our finite resources. I mean, I know some people think we should be £10 a month. Guess what? We'd have 10,000 members and then all the value would be gone. So actually, there is a reason why we're not £10 a month, you know? Um, um, and if you don't want to pay the price of the membership, well, that, that's fine, but you don't need to complain about it. It's the same as going to a restaurant and telling them that you don't want to eat their food because it's too expensive. Great. There are plenty of people. In fact, we only want people that make multiple times the cost of the subscription and therefore f- feel that it's acceptable to be able to pay us a little bit of that for our time and effort in keeping uh, the site live and redistributing all of the money into R&D projects and the staff going on. So when people complain about how we allocate our finite resources, what times of day we should work uh, on Discord, we can't accept it. And so we won't engage with users on Discord. And we do delete all posts and we have to time out people and boot people. Historically, a couple of years ago, it was a major problem. We ended up questioning whether we were going to bother with the Discord community or not because everyone has a different opinion on how they would manage a community such as BB without visibility of the balance sheet or the monthly join cancellation decay rate or the resource availability. It's simply an inappropriate conversation to have. You wouldn't go out for a meal and call the restaurant over to the table to argue about the cost of the rent or the number of the diners in the restaurant or the opening hours. And the opening hours is another issue. I think we would tagged recently at four o'clock in the morning and again at two o'clock in the morning i mean how can we possibly deal with that so now we've just withdrawn completely and that's why the support is in place so having said all of that we had a successful cheltenham by the empirical data at 12 o'clock on each day we didn't buy the feedback on the forum and that's fine perhaps the 12 o'clock courses were not indicative of the horses that were live at the other times of the day but we simply don't record those i don't know i have had a look at a larger data set of default versus BB algo. And this is a data set of um, January the 1st to March the 20th. I was going to do March the 31st, but I think I fast-tracked it because of the fallings out, the murmurings on the forum. People wanted to know the accusation that everybody I know has lost their bollocks. So um, I thought it was... probably time to actually do an analysis 11 days early we have 5058 horses under default and 4460 horses under bb algo remember there's no reason for bb algo to have a higher roi than default these are just unique horses so remember we're looking at these six bookmakers but we're not we're not looking at a horse at two bookmakers or more we're only looking at a horse at one bookmaker we don't include it if it's duplicated at another bookmaker so that's 5000 Default horses, 4,460 BB Algo horses. Quite a lot of horses. Um, not entirely sure how many races that is. I wish I'd actually work that out because that's more indicative of the sample size because a lot of those horses might be multiple horses in the same race. Anyway, if you were staking a unit win to win £200, just on the plus EV horses at 12pm, you would have £11,640 profit using the default metric. You would have... 12,604 using the BB Algo, but with fewer horses. So 6.8% using default ROI, 9.6% using BB Algo. 
Remember, though, that sounds great. That sounds like, well, you should always be using the BB Algo. Even knowing those figures, I still don't recommend the BB Algo for any other reason other than it is less likely to lead to restrictions than the default. I don't believe longer term that the BB Algo is going to have a higher ROI than the default. Just now, it's it's smashing it. It's 9.6% against 6.8%. And that's over 4,000 horses, 5,000 horses. But I don't think it's going to be that at the end of the year. I reckon by the end of 2023, the default will have caught up and will be marginally ahead. It's possible they could be very, very similar. I would expect them actually both to settle around 5 to 6%. So I think they're both running hot, but the BB Algo running hotter, if you know what I mean. So, um, yeah. But, I mean, it's a simple strategy. If you've got access to Bet365, Bet Fred, William Hill, Ladbrook, Skybet, and Paddy Power, you could have just logged on for the better part of 80 days Bet on 4,500 horses, which I really wish I hadn't got into this mess now. Is that 40 horses a day? Hold on. Yeah, it is, isn't it? No, hold on. Wait a minute. What's 4,460 divided by 80 without using a calculator? Yeah, it's like 55. Um, So 55 horses a day. So maybe an hour or two's work to bet on 55 horses. And remember, this is just singles only. So the ROI of multiples would be higher. Um, um, If you could find a way of getting through those 4,460 horses, ranging between 1,300 at Ladbrokes and 2,600 at Bet365 without facing restrictions, you'd have £12,604 in your pocket just now betting to a liability win of £200 each. I think that's quite good given that we built this algorithm in-house from regression analysis. That's my 10 cents. Certainly, nobody I know has done their bollocks in. Somebody I know has done the bollocks in, and it's me. (laughs) Certainly, I think I chose um, an interesting time to withdraw a significant amount of my golf bankroll, which had surged through 2022. I mean, at some point, the bankroll needs to be spent. You've got a couple of options um, when dealing with success. One, um, which is not a bad one, is to start staking higher. Um, you've got to start staking higher at some point or you'll, you'll, you'll always be down at micro stakes, right? So um, over my career, I staked higher on a number of different occasions. I think normally when after a period such as the 60% ROI in 2022, it's perfect t- time to start to reevaluate what we're going to do with the bloated bankroll. And staking higher is often, you know, a fun way to continue. I didn't choose that route. I decided I was going to withdraw a significant amount of it um, and put it towards my wife's 40th birthday and the uh, the expedition to Syria, which um, perhaps not the exact expedition to Syria had been on my mind um, for a long time, but something like it where I returned some of the money that I was making into a good cause to make me feel better and also to help out 
really to make me feel better, and that's fine. Had been on my mind since, I would say, December. Um, so instead of staking higher, I actually withdrew a considerable amount of bankroll and staked a little bit lower, not a lot lower, just fractionally lower um, at the start of the year. Well, let me tell you this. I have done my bollocks in. <laughs> if we start, if we're starting from zero at the beginning of 2023, which because it was a different staking strategy, it kind of felt like there's no reason in the world to break up betting strategies by calendar year, especially something like golf, where we're going to have a couple hundred tournaments per year, which is no sample size whatsoever. I mean, how many have we had in previous years? We've had. Um, uh, 49, we had half a season in 2019, so we had 49, yes, yeah, nowhere near, it's like 100 a year, we had 100 tournaments, 96 tournaments last year, 730 bets, it's nothing. Um, 60.33% ROI on the PGA. Um, there you go, although we had higher on the European Tour the year before, which were, and then the year before was disrupted by COVID, so not a real season. Anyway, um, it's been an interesting year. Started off as as it normally is, where getting maybe one place per tournament, like um, first couple of tournaments, two places, second couple of tournaments, three places. That's enough just to break even a place per tournament, roughly. You know, places generally either a small, a break even, a small loss, or a small win, depending on the EV. Then we had Max Homer win the Farmers Insurance in January. And maybe it just felt like, okay, well, this is, now we're in profit. And this is how the story went in 2022. We are plain sailing at this time. Um, very, very tempting just to go back to the old staking when Max Homer once, but I kept it, um, kept it the same as I had to, which is slightly reduced. And then my days, is it the worst Losing run in golf that happened between then and the end of March. I'm not entirely sure. I'd be interested to know that question. It's definitely, a, it's maybe the worst or the second worst. I should have maybe done this before the Bashcast. It's up there, the period between Max Homer um, in the Farmers Insurance and last week, which was the Valspar in the 20th or 16th of March, with the worst period of variance downswing in five years you can definitely you, you notice it when you do things like weekly golf value which people subscribe to which saw maybe 10 percent reduction in subscribers over that period but um let's count the tournaments and the places one two three four five six seven eight nine ten 11 that's 11 tournaments and only two places but actually those two places came in the first three tournaments is that really eight tournaments with no places oh my gosh i mean assuming i'm covering 15 percent of the field which i'm not in a lot of them but let's just do easy maths that's even money place in each one so two four eight would be the phoenix open 16 32, 64, 128, 256. So we were probably 
I mean, if you were to start at the beginning of that run and say, what are the what's the probability of getting no places in the next eight tournaments? Of course, to the power of eight should have been easy to do. It's 255 to one up to the Honda Classic. I mean, that's incredible. How many golfers was that that we put up in the options? I mean, of course, these are just a selection from the tracker. So obviously others on the tracker placed, but these are the ones that we picked. We picked 62 golfers in eight tournaments and not a single one placed. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The AT&T Pebble Beach, the Singapore Classic, the Phoenix Open, the Genesis Invitational, the Thailand Classic, the Hero Open, the Live Mayakoba, and the Honda Classic. That's extraordinary. I didn't actually know it was that bad. 62 golfers and zero places. At 255 times, you will have at least one place, and one time you will have no places, roughly. And then we move on. We finally got a place in the Arnold Palmer Invitational with our friend Tyrrell Hatton. And then the next two tournaments, we didn't have a single place. We'd lost all of those. And then um, in the Players' Championship, just Matsuyama, another tournament without a place in the DP World Tour. And it finally comes to an end with Taylor Moore in the Valspar Championship. It was an interesting one, actually, because Adam Schenk was winning that. Um, I would have preferred him to win because it was staked a little bit higher on Schenke. But um, he was winning all the way through the second round, the third round, fourth round and then in the 18th hole he drove and his ball was just like an inch behind a tree and he had to hit it left-handed and um it, it it was unfortunate but what the good news for i thought spieth was going to win that all the way but the good news for us was that we were in the clubhouse leader taylor moore at 60 to 1 and trey mullinax um sorry adam shank um was the guy chasing him so we had one and two in that tournament it's always nice when your guy in the clubhouse is just being chased down by another guy who you're on anyway would have preferred Schenk to win, but at least Spieth didn't. Taylor Moore brings an end to the rot. It doesn't put the year in profit. Um, so the results summary for the year. The PGA is fine. It's 29.9% ROI, two winners from 10 tournaments. Um, 74 bets in those 10 tournaments, a 7.4 players per tournament. But the DP World or the Asian and the Live, and again, I think I've covered this in a previous bashcast. I've heard people say... They don't bet DP World or Live. And I respect that. I just don't agree with it. They say that their confidence isn't the same. Maybe it isn't. Um, but again, as I've said, in 2021, we had a higher ROI in the European Tour. In 2020, we had a higher ROI in the European Tour. So across the lockdown years, we were doing better in the European Tour than we were in the PGA. So, um, But the DP World, get this, the DP World Asian Tour and Live, 13 tournaments, 100 bets, zero winners. We've staked £1,344 um, with a 1K bank. So we've advised that for a 1K bank. We're minus £911 from minus 68% ROI. We might as well be 100% ROI. That's over 100 bets. It's, a, it's pretty bad. That means a total at the end of March, even with those two winners, of minus 22% ROI to a 1K bank. We are minus £556. I think we've actually busted the 1K back bank in the worst period um, in 2023. So, I mean, if you started at exactly the wrong time, you busted the 1K bankroll, which has happened once before in five years. So it's unlucky. Um, I know when Rowan over in SBC was... Well, he still is, but I think he commented on it once when he was looking at the 
stakes that we advised to that he just doubled the bankroll. Well, we've never lost £2,000. Maybe I should be advising this under a £2,000 bankroll. I'm just, it's just all the way I, I like the idea of the replaceable bankrolls. So to the guy, I mean, I wrote a blog about it because you only sing when you're winning, I think, um, is the accusation there. So we wrote the blog about... Um, the losing run that we've been going on in golf and the fact that I've seen a number of people unsubscribe if just looking at um, the weekly Golf Valley tips. Again, I, 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 do, I don't actually know how many winners were on um, uh, the tracker that I didn't pick up because it's not something that we do. There will be changes to results recording in the future where we start... Um, Either recording every plus EV bet or doing something that winner odds do where if you take a bet, you click, I've taken this bet, and that gets recorded in a system, then that system can be interrogated. We actually have a couple of very large data archive projects in the background, one with 200,000 games on the game center and the other with thousands of players. I don't know how many thousands. It could be tens of thousands that have come out of the player XG benchmarked against the exchange. We've got all of that data. It's just figuring out what to do with it. It will be live at some point. But anyway, you only sing when you're winning. So here's a singing when we're not winning. 23 tournaments in 2023. That's nice and tidy, isn't it? Up to this weekend anyway. Um, this weekend being the weird match play. 174 bets. Minus 22% ROI to a £1,000 bankroll. You've lost 556 smackaroonies. Are we concerned over this performance and return on investment given that we've done our bollocks in i mean i personally have lost quite a whack are we concerned am i concerned no alternatively what i am pretty happy about optimistic about is that we've put a significant amount of work into adding new markets and new bookmakers onto our golf tracker so, um, from what we've heard, um, golf restrictions at a couple of places, they're a bit, I mean, William Hill have always been like, you know, they go eight places and then restrict anyone that actually takes eight places. That is their modus operandi. So a couple of bookmakers have been pretty harsh with restricting some people and you lose the standard bookmakers that, you know, are plus EV, your William Hills, your Skybets, um, uh, your your Coral and your Ladbrokes, we thought it was about time that we added more. I mean, the problem with adding more was that we need live scrapers in place that read the odds and update every time they get cut. So that takes a little bit of work because, I mean, imagine that. You've got to go to the actual page. You've got to read all of the golfers. If there's any changes or differences in synonyms, you've got to look those up. And then you've got to interrogate the page, read the odds, repopulate the golf tracker, and do this over and over again in some sort of server using a VPN. Or I'm not even going to pretend I understand how the technology works. All I know is that occasionally or frequently they do get blocked or something changes on the website page that was different to what it was last year and no odds get picked up. And this happens quite frequently. So the amount of maintenance and management that these things takes is unreal the it team do a great job and aren't just sitting around doing nothing so we've added are you ready for this independent shops the pools and the rest the re so um that's the only online one uh sorry that's the only shop one uh, and then the rest are online um the pools fitstairs 32 red groves and the kasumo b win sporting bet 
Bar One Racing Star Sports. Okay, well, that Star Sports is a shop. Sorry, um, Ben. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Bresbet, Rhino Bet, Virgin Bet, Poker Star Sports, which we had before, and then we lost, and then we got back again. And Mr. Jeff Banks, whatever you do, do not use the golf tracker to profit from and extract value from Mr. Jeff Banks, because heaven forbid he will classify that as acceptable punter bookmaker relationship despite the fact that he has blogs where he says that the only people that he restricts are arbitrage players i mean he sacked me off after one bet and was actually trying to withhold all of my money and wouldn't speak to me on the bashcast 100 bashcasts ago or something like that it would be a terrible shame if we stumbled across a significant amount of value at mr banks and extracted it from that bookmaker. The other thing that we've added is that a number of different bookmakers have started offering extra places. And one of the things I didn't expect is by adding these alternative extra places, it's actually, again, upset the forum. Um, we've added Boyle Sports, Bet365, Betfred, and Skybet, who can do some weird and wonderful things. They can go 12 places, 1 to 8, 9 places, 1 to 7, 6 places, 1 to 5, 2 places, 1 to 3. Um, and... The feedback has generally been not good. Um, and the general consensus that many had, would rather we hadn't added these, but it's like, you know, if you don't want to see them, turn them off, I think. Do you know? It's just like, you'd rather have access to information that you didn't use than not have access to information. The argument, apparently, is that by adding these, we have accelerated restrictions on them, and anybody that bets on these markets now gets restricted. I don't believe that. Why would they have markets up that you just bet on and get restricted on immediately? It's also too early to tell. We don't. It would be impossible to have a tracker up for one week and then immediately all the bookmakers start restricting on all the golfers that appear on it. If they were aware that these golfers were value, the more likely thing that they would be doing would be cutting the odds rather than immediately restricting anyone betting on them. But um, if you don't like them, don't use them. Just turn them off. That's a simple solution there. So, yeah, um, hopefully with the provision, the addition of all of these new bookmakers in these markets, we can um, what, what essentially sort of explode the ability to explore and find value. And there's no reason why ROI shouldn't actually be increasing with the provision of additional bookmakers and additional markets. <laughs> I know a man who hasn't lost his bollocks, and it's me uh, betting double delight hat trick heaven. Um, I love betting double delight hat trick heaven. Has always been my number one favourite concession. Don't know why. I think it's something about the love of football, where you're really hoping your guy is on first goal scorer, and then when he does get that first goal, you can't take your eyes off the match for the rest of the match, hoping that. You know, your, your first goal scorer payout should be decent anyway. I mean, if you're staking, I stake as a fairly big whack on first goal scorer. I mean, four figures liability. I mean, the good thing about the shops is that Betfred shops are so happy to take £300 on a first goal scorer slip. So they're lenient. Um, so it's quite easy to stake quite well. And I staked first goal scorer to four figures multiple times if necessary, and there's just something about 
when the guy does get the first goal and then the rest of the match is there for him to get the second goal. It's just a lot of fun. So historically, I've always bet on it, but we didn't apply too much science to the betting. Um, in my group, in my betting group, there was one chap who has a relationship with somebody at Bet365. It's about as far as down that route I can go. Would kind of always come at it from more less of a mathematical and more of a football knowledge background. And I've always wanted to turn that into a piece of software, but it's very, very difficult to translate. Um, the player XG tool had that kind of goal where there would be a graphical interface that could be manipulated in the way that my teammate member thinks about positioning, penalty taking and stuff like that that would help. But I don't know if it'll ever get there because I think it's quite a difficult thing to translate into paper. At the same time, we still wanted to come up with a mathematical framework for Double Delight, Hattrick Heaven. And so the player XG tool is quite, quite simple in that, in that we have an XG for a player, which we can derive quite successfully, uh, especially after it's normalized after team news. So we have this XG, which we're very confident in. And we're very confident in the probability of the player to score first. Somebody on Twitter, by the way, said the equation was wrong because I keep on saying player uh, first goal scorer is player XG divided by match XG. Uh, very correctly, they said that we've forgotten about nil-nil. Actually, we haven't forgotten about nil-nil. I was just, I like the, the, the abridged version sounded simple. So, okay, if you want to, let's, let's be technical. Um, it's player xg that is normalized fgs first goal score equals player xg that has been normalized under match xg divided by that match xg put brackets around all of that that i just said and then from that take away the probability of nil nil you actually technically should take away the probability of no goal scorer, not nil-nil. Two different things. Like, Tom, no goal scorer is nil-nil. Ha-ha-ha, no, no it's not. Back in the day, there used to be a crazy 200-to-1 edge for the, for, the, for, the, for the very patient hedges out there, um, where if you got um, no goal scorer at the same price, as you could lay nil-nil. So no goal scorer exists in the first goal scorer market, okay? And the last goal scorer market. It exists in there. It doesn't exist in the anytime goal scorer market. Why? Because they're trying to provide a complete market. Actually, it might exist in the anytime goal scorer, but if it had done, it's a byproduct of the first and last goal scorers to, complete, to have a complete market because you can have anyone on the pitch to score, but nobody could win that. And so they added in no goal scorers as, as a result. However... Own goals do not count. So a game could finish 1-0. But if that goal is an own goal, then there has not been a goal scorer unless own goal was included in the market. B-Win Sporting Bet would include it. They'd price it up at about 25 to 30 to 1. So you would imagine that the fair odds were probably 35-odd, 40 to 1, something like that. So 0.025 or 2.5%. I don't know how accurate that is. I've never actually looked at the number of goals that are own goals in a large 
data set. I'd love to know, by the way. So if anyone can get in touch with um, some figures about own goal rates over time, that'd be great. So technically, you could back no goal scorer, lay nil-nil, and if it finishes 1-0, but that first goal was an own goal, then you clean up. I have done it once. I don't know, I'm messing around back in the day. Um, hedging is for gardeners, though. I, 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 I'm almost ashamed to admit that. I was once on that. It was many, many moons ago. Um, and it was at Coral. That was the end of that account. So, look, technically we should be taking NGS out, but I don't have a... I, I, I actually don't care. I don't think it doesn't affect the mathematics enough. The difference between NGS and nil-nil um, should be roughly one fortieth different those two prices anyway right so um we take nil nil off mat, uh, player xg divided by match xg and that is first goal score and that gives us a complete market and that it's what we have in the algorithm bookie bashing going back to d double delight hattrick heaven so we've got um the probability of two plus and three plus which comes from in-house algorithms i'm going to stand by the fact that i'm convinced it's not a straight binomial plus on distribution to fit XG to two and three goals. Now, some people that are more intelligent than me have argued that it is. And so I went back and looked at the data in a larger data set. So um, the first one I did was 40 players over 20 years in the premiership. The second one was, I think, 20,000 goals, much bigger. And I got to the same conclusion. And that's plus on overestimates, underestimates the number of two braces and hat-tricks. There is something going on where it's not a Poisson distribution. And I came I came up with that theory initially. And also the exchange numbers kind of suggest that as well. And then some people who work in the industry of odds compilation for goal scorers told me that no, no, no. In-house, in this very resource-driven, technical business that comes up with probability distributions for goal scorers, it is Poisson. Well, quite frankly, I'm sticking my neck in the line here. I'm saying at the moment in time, I don't think it is. And so I, I, I'm more convinced at this moment in time, arrogantly perhaps, that I'm right over these odd compilers. Uh, time will tell over large data sets. We're getting very large data sets very quickly, by the way, although in 2 plus 3 plus they have to be extremely large data sets because of the, the rarity of those events. So we've got our own in-house neutral odds for double delight hat-trick heaven, knowing the probability in-house of first goal scorer ourselves, 2 plus and 3 plus, so we've got our neutral odds. So after team news, we push or plus EV double delight hat-trick heaven players to the tracker. Have a guess what happened in the first six months of us doing this and running it. In the first six months, were you to have bet on the first 280 players between the 13th of February 2022 and the 28th of August 2022? Six months, 200 and 80 players, 4,400 pounds staked if you were betting to 200 pounds liability on the first goal scorer. Have a guess how much money you would have made. The answer is nada, zero, zilch, nothing. When 
Eddie Nketiah didn't score first for Arsenal against Fulham when we made him 4.5 neutral odds on DDHH and he was 5 at Betfred. That 287th bet saw the DDHH results return next to £0 profit from 280 bets over six months. I would not blame anyone to have done the opposite of Bon Jovi and kept the faith. It's a very difficult thing to have done. Since then, we are, if you like, in the second half of the um, the life cycle of the results of the Double Delight Hat-Trick Heaven. We've had 560 bets in total, so that was 280 bets. We've had 280 more bets. Much fewer avoided bets these days. A lot of avoided bets were coming out of players that were starting on the bench. Now that we've got team news through... We see a couple, a couple slip through, like in Swansea versus Rotherham, maybe because of um, slight name mismatches or something like that. But generally, we now catch the, ver- the, the vast majority of voided bets. So we were running at 0% ROI. I mean, technically, it was like £30 profit out of £4,000 staked, which is um, something in the region of 0.6% ROI. Have a guess what we are in the last, the next 280 bets. Oh, and I have been on the vast majority of these in shop as well, because I like to be on them. And I had the faith. I mean, this is the thing about the person that writes the model. If I was following somebody else's, I may have been tempted to have given up after six months and 280 bets with no profit. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I wouldn't blame anyone for having given up. But the second half, we've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven double delights. Um, uh, that was um, Harry Kane, Erling Haaland, Enna Valencia, Brennan Johnson, Solly March up at 20 to 1 with a double delight, so paid out at 40 to 1. Michel Antonio, another Harry Kane. So we've had all of those double delights. We've had the hat trick heavens of Erling Haaland versus Wolves and Erling Haaland versus Leipzig. <laughs> You know, so that compares to like just two double delights and zero hat trick heavens in the first six months, and then uh, however many double delights that was, I wasn't counting. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think seven double delights and two hat trick heavens in the second six months. So fifty percent return on investment. Do you know what I mean? Um, just in the last six months, the overall picture. So all five hundred and sixty bets sits at thirty six percent ROI. But it's just another one of those. It's like. I hope you didn't give up after six months, having made nothing. Because the 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 previous the the last six months and especially the last three months have been a glut of double delights and a lot of just like single goal scorers at quite a few quite decent prices as well. You know, Harry Wilson for um, Sunderland versus Fulham coming in at seven to one. I mean, those hat-trick heavens are quite low, down at um, 2.75. But, I mean, they're st- 11 to 4, they're still paid out at 11 to 1.33. Not that that's a real um, set of odds. But um, Marcus Tavernier, Bournemouth Everton, 18 to 1. Joe Willock, Newcastle versus Chelsea, 18 to 1. So, yeah, um, it's one of those... It's, it's, it, again, we, we, we're only at... 560 matches or 560 players to tell you the truth 
Um, I'm not even entirely sure how many individual matches that is, which is the proper sample size of them. And the odds are quite high. I mean, the back odds are an average of 23.7. So the sample size, even after a year and a couple of months of recording this, is still very low. But one thing's for sure. If you've just been blindly on them recently, absolutely cleaning up on the Double Delight hat-trick heaven over... At Mr. Fred Dunn's Bet Fred. It's very rare that you get the opportunity to learn from the greatest of all time, which can be formed into an acronym, GOAT, right? So if you're the GOAT, you are the greatest of all time. Quite an accolade considering there are 7 billion people on the planet just now and an estimated 35 billion people that have ever lived. I just plucked the number 35 billion out of thin air there, so don't get in touch. So, yeah, I mean, like, the, the odds of coming across the greatest of all time in any science or discipline must be fairly unlikely. There's quite a small, finite number of disciplines available, especially when you look at the imaginary 35 billion number of human beings that have ever existed. However, uh, I had the great pleasure of being sent an article um, involving the greatest of all time professional better. Uh, and I encourage everyone to check this guy out because he's amazing. So the article I'm looking at just now is from mensjournal.com. Um, but there are almost identical articles at valiantceo.com and places like that. And go to the forward slash Christopher Mitchell. And the headline of this article is how Christopher Mitchell turned his hobby into a business and is now coaching others how to find the same success. Quite a complicated and protruded headline to that newspaper article, but Christopher Mitchell, a.k.a. the greatest of all time, which is the G-O-A-T if we didn't know, is helping others print money on demand by way of his new elite coaching club. The former network marketer turned professional gambling consultant and coach is out to prove that people can find success in gambling but wants to still stress the importance of playing responsibly and respectfully. Well, this is the kind of guy I could get on site other than the fact that he's crouched down in front of a turquoise lamborghini i think it's a lamborghini i'm not very big on cars it's a small sports car it may be one of a hundred different brands to be fair and he's wearing a hugo boss jumper and white trainers other than that and he's bald other than that i mean nothing against being bald to be fair but everything else i find repulsive other than that he seems like a great guy that i would get on with because maybe we've got quite a lot in common me and Mr. Mitchell. Um, he's got a new program out. The best part, according to this 
very legitimate newspaper article about his new program is the 100% money back guarantee. Crikey. One thing I will say is that we often get people getting in touch with bookie bashing, asking for money back if they don't like it or a free trial, to which the answer is always no. Because quite simply, I'm, I, I'm confident I have a product that is valuable. Um, you have two choices. You can either choose to pay for it or not. Uh, so I don't offer money back guarantees, nor do I offer trials. Mitchell does offer a 100% money-back guarantee, and it's pretty bold of him, so good on him. If players don't begin generating at least $500 per month when playing each week with Christopher, he will give them their money back. That's okay. To put it frankly, no one in the industry can make the type of claim and stick to it like he can. Well, I certainly cannot, so they're right there. He is in it to win it. He is in it to win it. Don't you love that? He's in it to win it. Who isn't in it to win it? But he is also passionate about helping others find success. I went from being completely broke to making over $100,000 a month and eventually became a millionaire in just three short years. A couple of things here. I hate these mathematics. Making over £100,000 a month would suggest that it would be 10 months before we were a millionaire. So the fact that we're making over $100,000 a month and then we eventually became a millionaire in 36 months suggests that we were making an average of $30,000 a month. So was the $100,000 a month an outlier? And if it is, why are we using the outlier as average earnings? People are living paycheck to paycheck and failing at casinos. Here we go. So um, plot twist and a little bit of a spoiler. He likes to give advice on casinos but also sports betting so we're not just going to stick with casinos they enter underfunded and walk out with nothing i'm here to help them the struggle was real is the heading of the next part of this article one day christopher walked into a casino whilst visiting las vegas for a work-related convention oh well pretty innocent isn't it he began gambling and never looked back all right so he immediately came up with an edge to be the only problem was when he started he had no game plan and the casino typically won every time ah well that would be a problem to the point where he hit rock bottom and almost lost everything and about three and a half years ago that's not that long ago by the way i was a rideshare driver and completely broke wow that is not that long ago i've been doing this for the better part of two decades he's only been doing it for three and a half years my wife was a registered nurse pregnant with our child and working 16 hour shifts it's not good for a pregnant woman to be working 16 hour shifts but there you go i just i just started my career as a gambler and i ended up squandering everything our entire life savings were gone we lost our home and cars and had to sell our jewelry okay I'm less inclined to, to want to take advice from this guy, but fair enough. He has since built himself up to millionaire status with a high-performing YouTube channel, including also has co-authored a book. Now, that's not me talking weird. That's the article. Along with his wife, Stacy, titled The 3% Millionaire Blueprint. In it... The couple explain the intricate 365-day journey readers can participate in to go from $100 to $1 million. Bloody hell. 
What's that? That's um, 10,000 times return on investment. That's pretty good. It is ultimately a roadmap to becoming an optimal, successful, and responsible gambling professional. Who the hell has a, turned $100 into $1 million, 10,000 times investment? Because what if you're going to do that, right? Not being funny, but why not just turn $1 million into $10 billion? Instead of starting with 100, just, start, well, maybe the table limits and bet limits. We haven't come across this particular edges yet. Anyway, additionally, Christopher and his family have been traveling a lot lately whilst also simultaneously filming a self-biopic documentary about his life. Crikey. The moral of the story, I'd love to know the moral of the story, is that anyone can come back from nothing and that's exactly what he did. Now money is no longer an issue for him and his family. He has a recipe for success in the casinos and in online play and he is doing everything he wants. Every day he wakes up. I stayed true to myself and true to my mission of teaching myself how to beat the casinos. Christopher said, fast forward today, I'm a millionaire and I'm wearing a $50,000 Rolex diamond watch. I don't have a boss. I do what I want, when I want, and with whoever I want. <laughs> uh, we're coming to the end of the article now. Stay, stay with me if you haven't fallen asleep. Mitchell plays a wide range of games but typically opts for baccarat roulette or blackjack win in the casinos because these games offer the highest opportunities to win however it's in his emphasis on maintaining a consistent bankroll and being responsible like knowing when to walk away from the table you gotta know when to fold them that he wants his followers to understand the obvious spotlighted pro to gambling is the possibility of winning big However, on the other end of the spectrum, some cons can be losing a lot of money and possibly developing an addiction. It's all in the way you conduct yourself. No one knows this better than Christopher. Nobody does. He wants his network to understand that's a marathon, not a race. Getting to the point of success. Oh, God, I'm getting bored. Can I get it to the end of this article? There's only two more paragraphs to go. Let's go. Christopher has a proven track record and the stats to prove it. <laughs> Learning from the GOAT. And taking advantage of everything the gambling consultant and coach has to offer is the best thing that any aspiring professional gambler can do. About Christopher Mitchell. Christopher Mitchell is the top professional gambler and gambling consultant in the world. He teaches people how to find success in roulette, blackjack and sports betting. After losing $500,000 in the casino, Christopher finally figured out how to win and created his personal recipe for success, which includes specific tips, rules, and strategies to follow. He shares his winning formulas with all with others all over the world through his private elite coaching club. For more information, please visit www.christophermitchellthegoats.com. And he's got this Facebook page, and um, he's recently posted on his Facebook page about sports betting. Um he says, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. Today, I'm taking $60,000 to the casino and I'm betting it on sports. Fair enough. I've seen people similarly stake before. I wonder what line he's putting it on. But he says it's kind of crazy to even think about that. It wasn't too long ago that it would have taken me a full two years to make $60,000. And now I'm going to bet that amount in a single day. Most people reading this think, one, I'm crazy. Two, you can't imagine betting $60,000 in a single day. It depends how many bets. I mean, if it's 100 bets, which is $600 per bet, and you've got a bankroll of maybe 
100,000 to 200,000. I can understand it. I don't know how many bets you're going to place in a single day. If it's one bet and you've got a bankroll of maybe around 6 million, then okay, I can understand. I mean, fine. I'm just coming at this from a analytical point of view, Christopher. As crazy as this might sound, what I'm going to do today isn't that risky. I've been studying this and perfecting my system, and now I'm going to put it into play today. Why do you have to do it all in one day if you've got a system? It's a very calculated risk. During my first six months as a gambler, the most I've ever had to play with was a $1,000 bankroll. I told my wife... A hundred times, if I just had a $10,000 bankroll, I would never lose. I spoke those words out of my mouth so many times, I embedded them deep down into my subconscious mind. I finally built up a $10,000 bankroll and way beyond a few years ago, and I've been winning ever since. Whatever you're constantly speaking and thinking about today is what you're going to manifest in the near future. Is it? Goat life, baby. And there's a picture of him. And he's got wads of cash on him and he's standing in front of a poster of a Paris hotel, which is fantastic. So, okay, great. He's off to gamble $60,000 on unknown sports um, in an unknown casino with an unknown volume and an unknown bankroll. He's got 101 likes and loves on this post, though. Um, Someone says, good luck. Someone else says, goat life, baby. That was uh, from Bruce Maeva. Someone says, um, um, please show the bet slips when you're done so I can copy. Christopher replies, uh, lol, very funny. I only share my sports bets with the members inside my elite coaching club. Um, that's $1,000 a month. My goodness. That's quite a lot of money. That's 10 months of bookie bashing. Um, someone just says, fuck yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah. Um, somebody asks for a thousand a month do you just get the picks or do you learn to the table strategies also and Christopher replies to that everything that was two hours ago and um, the, the person who asked this question has given him a thumbs up so this is so intriguing I mean, this guy is the goat which is the greatest of all time so I mean far from it for me to be suspicious about the goat because I'm not in the same league as this guy. But how can we do quality control on the goat? How can we assure ourselves that um, the goat is an expert? Well, we can't possibly get hold of one of his, for example, casino strategies, because his blackjack winning casino strategies cost $500. That is, except if someone happens to have... um, shared it with me and somebody has so this costs five hundred dollars and i might get sued duncan might have said to me perhaps be careful not to be sued but you know what hell with it i'm flying with the wind this might be copyrighted material but i feel it my responsibility to share with the world a blackjack strategy from the world's greatest gambler the in fact the greatest of all time so not just current living but all time I'm going to share his blackjack winning strategy with you, Um, which means that you don't have to pay $500 for this. Okay? Are you ready? This is going to be great. Um, One. So it's 10 sequential numbers. So one, go to a casino that has a lot of different blackjack tables. Two, find tables with small minimum bets and big maximum bets. Three, 
don't ever play blackjack online or on an electronic table game. Four, make sure you have a bankroll big enough to cover six martingale bets. Uh-oh. I'm pretty sure we just heard a word there that we should really never be hearing from the goat. Martingale, if you don't know, which you probably do, but is um, the uh, strategy of doubling your bet uh, every time you lose uh, until you win, um, which has been discussed to death, and I don't think it should really be necessary to explain the cons and the zero pros that goes with such a strategy. But there we go. Make sure you have a big enough bankroll to cover six martingale bets. Okay, five, don't ever split. Interesting. And that's certainly a deviation from optimal strategy. Six, don't ever surrender. Seven, don't ever double down. I mean, I had personally thought that almost all of the ROI and the uh, minimization of House Edge came from splitting and doubling down, but the goat tells us not to, so we're not going to do that. Eight, don't take insurance. Okay, yeah, he's right there. Number eight, don't ever take insurance. That'd be correct. Nine, don't ever bet on the side bets. Yeah, he's correct there as well. So eight and nine are quite good. And ten, don't ever bust. What? Don't take a hit if your first two cards equal 12 or higher. This is without a doubt the absolute greatest secret that I can give you. So the dealer's showing a 10 and you have a 12. And um, um, pretty much any mathematical simulation can show you how standing on 12 against 10 would be a terribly bad idea. Really like one of the worst strategies you could employ. But the GOAT t tells us that we're going to stand on 12 against any number, even a 10. So interesting, even an ace, okay? So here's the strategy. These, Those are the tips. Those are 10 tips, great tips there. Here's the strategy. Are you ready for the strategy? That's $500, $500 you're about to save here to get the GOAT's blackjack winning strategy. Bear in mind, we haven't even come to sports tips yet, and but we may not get there depending on what we find out in the blackjack strategy. One, okay, go to a casino. Keep in mind the tips above and find a blackjack table to sit down at. Next, put your cash down on the table so the dealer can exchange it for chips. I always find that quite a good strategy in casino bricks and mortar blackjack. Three, put the table minimum down as your starting bet. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Four, next one, no matter what, simply stick to the tips above on every single hand with no exceptions. All right, okay, let's see where he's going. Number five, if you lose a bet, double the size of your next bet, brackets, Martingale. If you lose six hands in a row, stop playing for the day. This should hardly ever happen as long as you follow my tips and strategy. So let's say you've sat down at, I think in the UK you can have minimum three pound tables in America, um minimum five dollars on the strip minimum 25 dollars so let's call it let's let's have some fun and call it um five dollars let's not even like it would be 25 dollars on the strip but let's say it's five dollars 
Uh, no, in fact, let's go £3 for the UK. So here's Martingale in £3. 3, lose. 6, lose. 12, lose. 24, lose. 48, lose. So the very last bet's going to be 96. And the overall loss, if the 96 loses, will be 96 times 2 minus 1, which is £181. Okay, not too bad. But that, bear in mind, is to win £3 on the sixth hand. Um... Or if it was a $25 casino on the Vegas Strip, 25, 50, 100, 200, 400, 800. So we are going to have bet in the region of $1,600 to win $25, 1575 to win 25 at the end of that. Um, and when we lose our $1,575 to win $25, we stop playing for the day. It's going to take a little bit of time to recoup that, but okay. I mean, once you get just one win, move to another table and repeat. So you'll get one win at a table and then move on to another table and get just one win. Keep bouncing from table to table, focusing on getting one win at a time. By bouncing from table to table, you are lowering the likelihood of losing a lot of bets in a row, a lot of martingales in a row. Is that the correct adjective there? Can you adjectify Martingale? Continue this process from table to table. It's not an adjective, it's a verb in that form. Continue this process from table to table until you reach your daily goal. Do not be greedy. Set a goal to win $250 to $500 a day. But what happens if we lose our $1,750 or whatever it was? This can be achieved very quickly playing the game of blackjack. Yeah, I mean, you could win it in one hand if you're paying $250 a hand. Remember, I use these exact tips and strategies to win $500 to $2,000 in only 30 to 60 minutes every single day. If I can do it, so can you. By buying my blackjack strips and strategies from me, you also get me as your personal success coach. You can email me anytime with any additional questions you might have for no additional cost whatsoever. Please email me at changeyourlifevlog at gmail.com. Same here, by the way. Anyone can email me at tom at bookiebashing.net and I will not charge you a single penny for emailing me. I will not charge you a penny. Um, and genuinely, I'm being flippant there, but we also do clinic calls at Bookie Bashing and don't charge a penny for that as well. I'll have a chat with you for 15 minutes. I've never actually spoken to anyone for under half an hour. We call it 15 minutes. So uh, always happy to schedule that in for anyone that gets in touch. I enjoy talking to people. He continues, some people ask me for coaching over the phone. Oh, here we go, like my clinics. If this is of interest to you, I do provide live phone consultations at the following additional costs. 15-minute consultation, $100. 30-minute consultation, $175. 60-minute consultation, $300. Crikey, that's like the last 15 minutes free if the 15-minute consultation is $100. I need to, right, that's it. Exchange rate, one-to-one. Next clinic call is going to be a hundred pounds. I'm afraid I'm taking after the goat. I also travel all over the United States on a weekly basis, going to different casinos. If you've purchased one or both of my strategies, the other one being Baccarat, if you want to meet me at a particular casino in person to gamble alongside me, I'll be happy to meet you there at no additional cost whatsoever. Please stay in touch and let me know about your secrets. I look forward to hearing you. Sincerely, Christopher Mitchell. Disclaimer, these tips and... 
please gamble responsibly. So there you go. That's the blackjack uh, strategy. That's $500. Now, Duncan has asked me not to get sued here, and yet I have just read out this presumably uh, incredibly valuable uh, and copyrighted piece of information about the hidden world of how exactly we win. You forget about perfect strategy, the mathematical perfect strategy of blackjack, and you you go with, you know, you never surrender, you never split, you never double down, and you martingale your way up and you stop after six losses in a row. That's it. That's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Um, if you were wondering about what the Baccarat strategy was, and I bet you were, um, he, you're looking for choppy tables. By choppy tables, I mean, let, let, let's just sort of reverse a little bit. In Baccarat, you can bet on the player or the banker, yourself or the banker. Um, and so what you're looking for is choppy tables where it's going back and forth, meaning player, banker, player, banker, player, banker, player, banker. Once you find a table that's very choppy, choose one side. If the bet wins, you keep the entire profit and move to another table. If the bet loses, you double the size of your bet. Uh, if you lose that bet, you double the size of the bet again. This strategy always bets on the same size because you're only trying to get one win on a shoe that is very choppy. This is genius. And once you get one win, you move to another table and repeat. I mean, so you'll get one win at a table and then move on to another table and just get one win. Keep bouncing from table to table, focusing on getting one win. All you need is one win. But what if there are no choppy tables? What if there's a streaky table? Walk around, you find a streaky table that means that either one of the sides the player of the banker is going on winning streaks practically every single time what do we do then christopher well thankfully he has a strategy for streaky tables a winning streak is at least two wins in a row that is quite streaky once you find i mean like just two wins in a row i mean a choppy table is player banker player banker player banker now we're just looking for any player player or banker banker once you find a table that is very streaky always bet on whoever just won the last hand this is genius this is have you ever heard of gambler's fallacy? If you win your first bet, keep the entire profit and move on to another table and repeat. If you lose your first bet, martingale it and bet the opposite side because it's a streaky table. Of course, this is genius. The strategy always bets on the winner, the side that had just won because you're only trying to get one win and the shoe is very streaky. You should get a win between one and three bets most of the time. I mean, this is just amazing. And then he goes on to say he does 15-minute consultations for $100 if you want them. So there you go. Those two strategies are $500 each, although if you get them both at the same time, they are $750. They may very well be protected and copyrighted information and... My partner, Duncan, is concerned uh, that we will get sued on the Bashcast, but I have just read out the information so that you do not have to go and pay Christopher Mitchell $750. Those are his casino strategies. I'm going to leave it up to you to decide whether you're going to go ahead and pay $1,000 a month for the GOAT's sports betting advice. Do not let me sway that decision in any way whatsoever. What I would suggest, though, is that whatever you are betting on this weekend, do make sure it's valued. This is Tom signing out.